Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Tracy Osborne. Based in Toronto, Tracy is the founder of the popular wedding planning and services site Wedding Lovely, and a popular speaker as well as the author of a number of books that help people learn how to code and also how to design. Tracy's books, inspired, I believe, by her own experience teaching herself how to code, include Hello Web App, its sequel, Hello Web App Intermediate Concepts, and her latest, Hello Web Design, Design Fundamentals and Shortcuts for Non-Designers. The book is based on Tracy's Design for Non-Designers conference presentation, which she has delivered at conferences all over the world, including GitHub's CodeConf LA 2016, the Mozilla ViewSource Conference 2016, and a keynote talk at O'Reilly's Fluent Conference 2016. You can follow Tracy on Twitter at LimeDaring, and learn more about her work on the web at hellowebbooks.com slash news and her personal website, limedaring.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Tracy's career path, learning how to code, founding a startup, her successful Kickstarter campaigns for her books, and at the very end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Tracy, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you. That was quite a, a comprehensive introduction. <laughs> yeah, I like to do um, uh, a, a fair amount of research, maybe more than I ought to uh, for these podcasts. I like to get to know the person a little bit in advance. Um, yeah, it sounds like a lot of stuff to cover. <laughs> yeah, well, you've done a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I always like to start uh, these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, uh, your, I guess, your early life and your education and how you originally became a web designer. Sure. Uh, I was really lucky that I had s several family members of mine who worked in computers early on. So I was born in 1984 and all of my life I remember having a computer and it's one of those like, you know, uh, like the old Mac with a really tiny four inch screen or the ones that have those, um, I wish I remember the names of those, but those giant floppies, like one of my earliest memories is having one of those, uh, those little catalogs where you can just paw through all the floppies and family members who worked in tech would just give us all these random things. And it was like, Oh, what is this one? You put it in the computer and Oh, it's a coloring game. And I don't know. It just, I was really lucky to grow up surrounded by computers, uh, especially because I lived in a rural area. So the choices were, Oh, go play outside and climb mountains or stay inside on a computer. And of course I chose to just fuss around these giant floppies and figure out how to computer, how computers worked and spent all my time indoors, uh, playing on them computers from 1986 on or around that time. So, uh, in high school, uh, that's when the internet's really started becoming a thing. And I discovered in high school that I, it was a quick, easy A if I uh, made a website rather than writing a book report. So I'd be like, oh, go research uh, Jonas Salk. And instead of writing whatever pages of or book report I had to do, I'd make a website and just like put in a paragraph of information on each page of the website. But websites were so new that the teachers were like, wow, you put this on the internet and I could all, they had to all pull it up from their computers in the classroom on whatever slow internet connection we were on. It just blew their mind. And it became my way of getting an easy A when I was in high school. And so that's kind of where the web stuff started with me as I used it to skate through uh, assignments. And I, when I went to university, I thought because I loved computers um, and loved building websites, I was like, oh, naturally I'll go do computer science. And that's a whole story on its own. But I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in California for computer science and quickly found out I hated university level programming. So I switched my degree over to art. I 
I decided to do like a complete 180 and go to the opposite direction because I thought I hated programming. Finished my university degree in arts, got a job in um, doing front end development, just HTML and CSS after university. And after I left that job, that's when I looked back at programming and I decided to launch a startup because uh, I was in the Bay Area and that's what everyone does. And um, if I could just uh, interrupt you there, what was it about university programming class, <laughs> the program that you that you hated so much? Yeah, it's so I wrote jumping ahead a little bit. I wrote Hello Web App because I didn't like um, the way that programming is taught. And I really realized that in university because I wrote my books in a way that's teaches programming in a more visual uh, and more concrete way. We're actually building something. Whereas my university education back in the day was very theory, uh, theory based for the first few classes. Like the first, I think my first quarter class, we were building things, but the, the key class for me was this theory class at the end of the, my first year. And it just murdered me trying to, we had to reverse engineer sorting methods uh, and create this report showing how we like, uh, what was it? You know, showing the the timing of the sorting methods that we've reverse engineered and proving that bubble sorts. These are all things I barely remember, but bubble sort was better than other sorting method. And this, it was just not fun to me. I I learn better when I'm building something and this class and the teacher also involved in the class uh, really didn't like me and once accused me over email of when I wasn't getting something, he accused me of just trying to skate my way through the class and was really mean. And it's a whole long story. And I was like, I hate this. And so that's why um, I switched my major. I, I sometimes want to take my books back to that professor and be like, haha, see, I actually did learn programming. I learned Python. <laughs> it's much better than Java, which is what we were doing too. That's a really interesting story. Um, not only because of the, um, uh, element of, you know, personal relationship that came into it, which is one of the pitfalls of university life that people often don't talk about that, you know, a bad pro a per their, their professors are people and they can take a dislike to someone Yeah, and they can actually personally take it out on people. And it's such a, it's such a perilous journey in that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, um, but also um, there's actually a sort of unofficial theme of this podcast, which is that, um, you know, because so many of our authors are, the Lean Pub authors that we interview are um, programming folk. Mm -hmm. um, I find about half stu formally studied computer science and about half didn't. <laughs> and I always like to ask people if you were, I mean, things change so fast. If if you were starting out again now, would you, I mean, I guess I know the answer for you, but that you're going to, yeah, but the answer, the question I'd like to ask people is, would you go into computer science or would you just strike out on your own if your goal was to have a job as, as a, you know, developer in tech? Mm-hmm. I bet a lot of people, I mean, there's so many resources online now for teaching yourself, which is awesome. Uh, one of the reasons why I wrote my own book is I, I found it really easy uh, I say easy in air quotes, which you can't see. <laughs> it's like easy enough to write my own resource that I wish existed rather than say, you know, going back and spending four years in university. Uh, that said, I don't want to hate on my university too much because I just found out that they've revamped our computer science program at Cal Poly. Uh, and now they teach Python and then they do yeah, now these introductory classes are building real things, which brings me so much joy to know that they're some of these university courses are taking the criticisms um, 
around teaching computer science and they're starting to update it to be more uh, applicable applicable to the real world uh, now. So yay, Cal Poly, I'm really happy to hear that. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's funny you're giving me an opportunity to ask another type of question, which is um, for those of our listeners who might be technical types who've never gone near an art class, uh, <laughs> what, did you, what did you study as an art major? I was, my, my, uh, my specialization was graphic design. The, the degree name officially was art and design. And I loved art in high school as well. I just kind of did art classes and played around the computers. Uh, my, it's a funny thing about being an author is I am terrible at grammar and spelling and all those writing things. That was definitely my worst classes in university and high school. But my two things were art and computers. And when I switched to graphic design, I was in this I hate computers moment because I switched out of computer science and I was planning on becoming a product, uh, product designer doing labels on wines or, um, uh, packaging, but I kind of fell back into doing web stuff while I was in university. Cause there was this, uh, startup, like literally a bunch of guys in a garage down the street from the university. They were building this startup around online education lead generation and they needed a designer and I needed the job. So while I was at university for graphic design, I started working with them uh, doing the front development and I ended up working with them for four and a half years. So three and a half years after my graduation. So I fell back into computers that way, even though my my plan while I was studying art was to become a package designer. And so you did, you did spend five years, um, working as a web designer and can you describe mm -hmm. a little bit to people what, um, the day-to-day -day life is like of a web designer? What, what's the first thing you do? <laughs> uh, I will say that my experience is probably really different than other people's because it was a startup and it was, it started out as just a bunch of friends working together, building a startup, um, and trying to get rich together, which it didn't really work out, uh, I'm not going to go too much into this, but it was one of those classic cases where I never got anything in writing. And then after the company was successful, it didn't. Um, and then I tried to get things in writing. It didn't uh, match with with what my expecta expectations were, which is why I left the startup. That said, uh, for a long time, it was just a bunch of friends working together. And I also was the only designer at this company, which was a good and bad thing because when I started working with them, I didn't know CSS and I didn't know, I mean, this is when CSS just started becoming a thing and I didn't know CSS. I didn't know a lot of modern web tools because my graphic design degree, while it did have web design classes, the web design classes were already outdated. We were doing flash and Dreamweaver stuff when HTML and CSS were, uh, were and still are, you know, the th way to build websites. So at this job, I didn't have a, any designers telling me what to do, anyone leading. I had to really uh, educate myself. And this was, was a great place for me to learn web design because this company had a slew of different websites. They had about 13 different properties. And when I was hired, it was like, okay, Tracy, redesign this property. So I would do a redesign of one and then move on to the other, move on to the other. And by the time I finished the third, the, you know, the last one, I learned so much in that process that my, and my web design skills had gotten so much better that I went, I had the opportunity to go back and start redesigning them over again. So my four and a half years there were really me deciding where, what I need to learn and how to apply it to our, to the properties at this business and what I needed to educate myself with and what conference I need to go to. And that was 
awesome. It was, that was a really great opportunity for me, um, to really learn how to work for myself while still having a company around me. And this is what really led to me feeling comfortable starting a startup and working for myself entirely. Yeah, that's, that's what I'd like to ask you about next. Um, but yeah, I'd like to, uh, repeat, I guess your implied warning to anyone listening, uh, <laughs> considering getting into a, a startup with somebody, um, you're going to spend a lot of your life in that endeavor. Take a moment to sit down and read the fine print. Oh yeah. And really understand, uh, the contracts that you're getting into. Um, it's worth, um, the time. Um, there's a really good book by Brad Feld. I'll put the title in the show notes cause I can't remember it right now. <laughs> it's now a few years old, but, um, it, it's really helpful when it comes to that kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, we've all, we've all had that experience where you're just so excited and you just take things for granted. Yeah. It, you think you're working with a bunch of friends and we'll all take care of each other. But as soon as money enters that equation, uh, you're not really friends anymore. You have to watch out for yourself. Yes. And also, I mean, one form of startup success is, um, investment coming in and, um, you know, all of a sudden when there's other people looking at you, um, it can make a big difference if you've got your house in order. Yeah, totally. Uh, as opposed to if it's just a kind of, you know, messy basement that you've got there. <laughs> uh, so you decided to, um, you, so you had an idea for the startup and can you talk a little bit about what that idea was and maybe, I mean, how it came to you, if there's any story behind that? Yeah. So that summer, um, I started dating my now husband who, uh, during that summer, it was a summer after I quit my job and before I started the startup, I decided to, uh, work, I decided to freelance design and see if I could just make a, make a living by freelancing. Now I, during the summer, I was lucky that Andre, my husband was working, excuse me, uh, started his own startup and he went through Y Combinator, uh, in Silicon Valley. And for me, uh, contracting design, this gave me an easy in to Y Combinator companies that need designers. So I was able to work with several companies in his batch, uh, Reportive, which was sold to LinkedIn at this point, but I believe my website design for Reportive is still up. It was like a Gmail sidebar. Um, I worked with a few others in his batch and it was a really great summer in that I was able to see startups working and get really inspired by what my husband was doing. My then boyfriend, uh, and what these other companies were doing. And I also learned that I really didn't like freelancing because while these companies are great, they, ha I had such strong ideas and, you know, with freelancing, you really have to work with the clients and work with their ideas. And I started to get a little, uh, strong headed and thought to myself that I'd much rather do design just for myself. And I was so inspired by these sort of startups that I was like, okay, I do design for only for myself. That means I can start my own startup and start building something. So I kind of just decided that I like startups and I wanted to work for myself. And the, the thing was with my um, university experience with computer science, I had no intention of learning how to program. I thought that I was a terrible programmer. I'm still haunted by those days. So I did this process over about three months of trying to find my co-founder, co my technical co-founder. And I went through so many meetups. I went to a conference about finding co-founders and uh, all these places, these like find your co-founder. It's like 99% marketing people looking for like the one technical person in the audience. It's like a terrible way of starting a company. But I thought I thought I, I couldn't program. And so I needed to find that person to work with me. And I wrote a blog post that went on Hacker News. And I actually that actually went really well in Hacker News. I got something like 200 upvotes. 
I had all these interviews and uh, narrowed it down to one person. And we started working on a startup together, which is not Wedding Lovely. It was kind of like precursor. And we got a Y Combinator interview. And it's, I thought I was doing everything right. Like, oh, cool. I actually have my co-founder and I have my startup and we have a Y Combinator interview. And that the day before the interview, just everything erupted, exploded. And it was like obvious that him and I could not work together because we only knew each other for about a month at that point. And it's a really bad idea to start a uh, startup with somebody you only know for a month, which why have we had that big explosion? So that, when that exploded and we did the interview, but did not get into Y Combinator, which was a good thing because we couldn't work together. That's when I was like, okay, well, if I actually want to work for myself and I want to do design for myself and I want a startup, that means I need to actually learn how to build the startup myself. So that's pushed me finally into learning how to program. And, um, uh, just, just actually get another kind of comment. Um, those kinds of explosions are, um, not unusual. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and as you say, especially if you've only known people a short time, but I mean, you know, the, the longer you get to know people, the more explosions you're going to have with them and it's learning how to weather them and manage them. That's a part of a good successful. Right. Which is, you know, it's, I've seen so many, I have had living in Silicon Valley and being so close to all these startup incubators and doing them myself and seeing all these startups. It's like co-founder issues are the number one thing that, seems to break up a company, especially early days, because people it's really great when you can find the best person to work with. However, you know, if, like it, it can really fray friendships and uh, break startups apart when things are going downhill. Yeah, it's interesting that just very briefly, I had an experience where um, I worked on a no, I, we can call it a startup. It was a nonprofit <laughs> startup type thing in the art space. And um, it was going to be an annual basically crowdfunded um, uh, annual poetry anthology and prize, um, cool. very big prize. It was $50,000. Um, and, uh, it was in its own way, very high pressure. And it was after we pulled it off that finally the tension between myself and one of my co-founders could no longer be contained, mm -hmm. uh, because we pulled it off and as long <laughs> as we'd been in service of this goal, um, you know, all the fights and disagreements, you know, were resolved in one way or another because we were committed to achieving what we were set mm -hmm. to do. But once we pulled it off the first time, the, the goal was to be annual. Um, you know, it just was obviously untenable at that point. Um, so, and it is, it is an interesting thing about, uh, that particular form of, I mean, you know, there's office politics everywhere, but the startup life is just so yeah. intense or can be so intense. Um, and so, well, speaking of relationships and fights and pulling things off, um, <laughs> how did you get the idea for um, uh, wedding services? Yeah, it's it's a, sometimes a little embarrassing to be like, I have a wedding startup because I'm a woman. And it feels like it's so cliche, of course, a wedding, the wedding startup for a woman. And I actually, the thing is, I actually hate weddings. I, I like attending weddings, but I think the wedding industry is absolutely ridiculous, which is why it's especially funny that I'm running this wedding startup. But I love small businesses. And this whole thing started out uh, as a designer as I wanted to support small graphic design businesses. And I, I decided that if I'm going to learn how to code, 
I need to have a small, easy, achieve, achievable idea to teach myself how to code with. And I landed on building a directory of wedding invitation designers because I wanted a better way for people to find invitation designers near them. Uh, and work with them rather than say using some of the big companies like Minted or Wedding Paper Divas or these other online invitation companies. I was like, okay, how can I help graphic designers working from home who designed wedding invitations? How do I get them more clients? So that's how it really started is weddings was this the niche that I landed in, which is funny now that Wedding Lovely has a moved on from just one directory of invitation designers. And then I built a directory for planners and a directory for photographers. And then I had to tie all these directories together. And then I built a wedding planning app on top of that. So you can put in your wedding dates and uh, your preferences. And it kind of builds a little um, walkthrough for weddings. Uh, Now that I've built all those things, they always like one led to another after another after another. I still am... They're very critical of the wedding industry, and I'm really critical about what it pushes people to do. And I, even when I got married, I went to Las Vegas. I went to the little white wedding chapel, and I eloped. Uh, it's a little funny, a little dis, little bit of dissonance between what I do and uh, my own personal feelings. But I'm hoping that what I've been working on with Wedding Lovely will help change the industry for the better. And what is it about the industry that I mean, I can guess, but you know, here's, here's another chance to to. Uh, have your say about what it is that you don't like about the wedding industry? Uh, What's going on with weddings, um, the push to have like the perfect wedding, the big wedding, the fact that weddings cost $28,000 on average uh, across the U.S. right right now. And that's just that's on average. And places like New York City, obviously, it's like there's always get skewed. But that's I think New York City is at four city is at $40,000 for a wedding. It just it's ridiculous. And everyone knows that. And everyone says, oh, I'm not going to spend that much money. And then they start planning their wedding. It just racks up and racks up and racks up because you have all these expectations. Like your wedding must have uh, beautiful photography. You must have videography. You must have favors. You must have flowers. And which creates these beautiful experiences you can look back on. But at what cost? So it's I'm hoping that wedding lovely. Um, I've been trying to put in ways to be like, okay, cool. You can have this experience that you're kind of been trained to want through culture. Um, but here's ways that you can, uh, do them more cheaply, or you can don't feel like you're compelled to use all the traditions that are on there. Cause a lot of traditions are just been made by marketing companies, uh, like diamond rings. And, um, they wanted to put a place where it said, it's okay not to follow tradition. It's okay not to do what everyone else is doing. Like, that at its end, a wedding should just be a big party to celebrate the fact that you've decided to live your life with another person. You know, that's really interesting. You just reminded me of an old memory. Um, my mom did her master's degree in sociology in the 1970s. And um, one of the things she researched was where people got in North America, got their contemporary idea mm-hmm. of the wedding ceremony and what weddings should be like. And what she found, and take this with a grain of salt, because it was a young woman doing her master's in the 1970s, um, but what she did find was that it came from the the girls that she interviewed, or the the young women that she interviewed, got their ideas of what a wedding should be like from their mothers, who got their image from soap operas that they'd been <laughs> 
<laughs> soap operas, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure the market, you know, there's always this, you know, sort of, you know, um, uh, feedback effect of marketing and television and how things are represented. Mm-hmm. But I just, yeah, I just remembered that, that that was a very interesting thing that it was representations of weddings in fiction mm-hmm. that ended up driving reality, which is one of those things that's like not surprising when you say it or until you say it. Mm-hmm. Um, or it, it, no, it's surprising until you say it. Um, it's yeah. probably the best formulation. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, so there. So okay, so you had this idea, and uh, and then you re- and you knew you needed to learn how to code. So how did you go about learning how to code? I uh, was lucky that my same uh, boyfriend, now husband, uh, who went to Y Combinator, is was skilled in Python. So he kind of directed me, helped me learn Python, directed me towards uh, resources around Django, which is a framework on Python to help you build web apps, which is, and incidentally, my book, Hello Web App, is on. And Django, because it has a lot of hand-holding for, um, it, it kind of abstracts a lot of the programming work away. So it builds an admin, it has all these helper methods, so you can build, um, uh, like have password management and all that kind of stuff uh, built in. It made it easy enough for me to follow along the tutorial that I was teaching how to build a blog and I was able to alter it in order to build a directory. So I kind of taught myself how to code as I was building this initial website. Uh, and I didn't really understand how things were working, which I am a big fan of now. I'm like, you know, just build and you'll figure things out along the way. That's another reason why I built, uh, wrote Hello Web App. But yeah, so I just, I built this, very minimal website and then it was then it was like a then oh i need to learn how to um add payments so i then i would research paypal and research stripe and i would learn more about programming and i'd integrate that feature and then it'd be like oh now i need to add uh geolocation so research that and add it in and then i've learned something new so this whole process of learning how to code was really just me building wedding lovely yeah, as you say, I think in your books, you learn, learn by doing, um, yeah. that's one of your mantras. Um, and as I understand it, and I think it was in fall 2011 that you got taken up by, um, 500 startups yeah. and the designer fund. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but were you part of an incubator? Yeah. So 500 startups incubator technically, so designer fund has evolved since then, but at the time designer fund is this group in Cal, um, in San Francisco to help designer founders. And at the time they did have like a batch incubator ish program. So I originally went through that. And then at the end of that, I was accepted into 500 startups, which was really awesome because I was then and still like a solo founder. So it was good to have 500 startups give me the stamp of approval and accept me into the program. And I got the investments from that as well. So that was, it was a very interesting three months uh, as all incubators. I think everyone who's gone through an incubator would say, uh, I'm glad that I did it. I've, I learned so much while I was there and I was able to um, uh, grow Wedding Lovely while I was there. And where did you have to move for those three months? Thankfully not. I, because I lived in Silicon Valley already, I was, I was in San Jose. So, it, and 500 startups there at the time, their, um, main incubator was in Mountain View, which I think now they're San Francisco and Mountain View. So it was a quick 20 or so minute drive up to the office, uh, for me to go up there. And, um, so what was that like being in an incubator as a sort of independent, you know, solo startup person Did, would, would you, you know, just meet with other people in your batch? Um, and talk about your challenges and things like that. Yeah, 500 startups. I'm not sure if they still do this, but at the time they required you to buy a desk to them. So you had a space to work. And I wish one of the things if I had a genie and I can 
go back in time and do something over. I really wish I could redo my five minutes startups experience because there was a few things that like one of the things that kind of affected my experience there was that there they had another wedding company in the batch and they actually took that other wedding company and put us together in the same group of desks and thinking that we'd work together. And, but what happened really was that we were not friends. <laughs> we were kind of competing with each other, which is not usually incubators avoid having competing companies in the same batch. And we ended up competing, which they had a big team. Like their, their website has actually has since they've been long gone. I've lasted way longer than them. And they've moved on to other things. But at the time, they looked more successful. They sounded more successful. They had a bigger team than me. And I am not without, uh, I am uh, affected by anxiety sometimes, as we all are. And it was just a very anxious time for me <laughs> to be working on my own website and my own startup, having this other group of people seemingly doing better than me and also getting all the investment at Demo Day. Because if someone's going to invest in one wedding company, they're going to invest in that company and not me. So if I could do anything, I would love to redo 500 startups and start it from scratch and not be competing with someone. And I think I would have a better experience, but there was that because that happened during my time there, it kind of affected how I, how the whole thing went for me. Yeah. That's a really interesting story. Um, I, yeah, I had been under the impression that as a general rule, I mean, not only, um, incubators, but VCs themselves mm -hmm. do not like to back competing companies. I hadn't thought about that very specific reality that you face, which is part of being in an incubator. It's generally is that you have a, a demo day where you present to potential investors. And I mean, if you're competing on that day, uh, yeah. you have the pretense that you'd be, um, you know, mates you know, <laughs> yeah. along, along the way to that very big day is just, um, pretty ridiculous. Actually that yeah. I've got a very brief story. So about how competitive things can be. So, um, once for, um, uh, and an uh, app that uh, I was helping out with. Um, we were in the demo pit at um, a conference in uh, San Francisco, and we bought a big, at the time, you know, big like 56 inch screen TV <laughs> that sort of basically took up as much space as we were permitted to have, and it was 4K. And uh, the screen itself, you know, was enough to sort of attract people to our booth. And there were these two guys next to us who um, uh, had their own very different app, but they had a tiny little normal monitor um, And in the morning. But by the afternoon, they had uh, a similar display uh, because they, they looked ridiculous <laughs> next to us. And it's just, I mean, that's, that's a petty example. Um, but, yeah. But it is, I mean, it's simple things like that um, can actually just get people really you know, they were thinking about it, um, and they had, yeah. they should have, and they were right to. Um, and so, um, eventually you found your way to deciding to write a book. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, uh, what led you to that? Yeah, I love, um, I'm so happy that I, I took the leap into, to writing a book and, because it was kind of a it was a huge leap because I was in the middle of working on Wedding Lovely. And admittedly, I was getting a little burnt out. Like Wedding Lovely, I've talked about in other podcasts. Um, and uh, there's a whole other story and the whole running a startup thing. And the long story short was I, I started getting burnt out and things weren't going very well for me for a while. And I decided to write a book as a way to, A, bring in more money because uh, everyone – 
I was reading a lot of uh, articles online about people writing books. I think um, Nathan Berry was one of my inspirations. He's written and self-published quite a few books. And I was like, oh, you know what? I've been looking at this this process of learning how to code. Uh, since I taught myself how to code, I had, and I learned so much. I kept, I was involved in the Django industry, and I was seeing what other people were doing and waiting for someone else to write a better tutorial because I was after I learned things I was like wow they're really teaching us a terrible way you know maybe someday someone will write a better tutorial about how to teach web development and that didn't happen so I and I was burnt out and wanted a side project uh, to you know distract my brain from what was going on in startup life so I decided to to write a hello web app and um teach Django web app development the way I thought it should be taught, which was, you know, more visual way, more, um, project based, like the learn by doing, which instantly is my university is their That's their, uh, uh, motto is learn by doing. So I kind of stole that from Cal Poly, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it learning by, um, in hell web app. I, I have like a project, uh, skeleton. I say you're building a collection of things and that collection of things that can be applied to many things that are like a Twitter is a collection of tweets or a collection of short sentences. And Pinterest is a collection of images. Instagram is a collection of images. Uh, a directory like what I built originally is a collection of people. So I show people how to build a collection of things in Hello Web App. And I'd say, OK, here's where you would update it. Like I say, object and you can change that object to post or picture or sentence. Uh, and my goal is that someone will actually build something that's unique, not just building the skeleton, but actually laying something unique on top of that. And uh, um, hopefully that will help the information insert itself into their brain uh, and help it stick. And people hopefully will learn uh, by doing, really. And your uh, your latest book, which was just published recently, is Hello Web yeah. Design. Because I'm clever with yeah. my names. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I think I think I remember from reading one of the earlier books, you actually had the idea for Hello Web Design near near the beginning, of, like at the time that you were publishing Hello Web App. Is that is that? Correct? I've been working on it. I have this idea of kicking around my brain for a long time because you know when I'm teaching programming to designers, I naturally start thinking, oh, I can teach maybe design to programmers. So I decided to test out the ideas of Hello Web Design by, uh, by building a conference presentation. And because I was still working for myself and I have free time to travel, I decided to take that conference pr presentation and apply it to so many conferences. And I ended up giving it, I probably at 12 different conferences, I'm guessing at the number, but that's what it feels like. The Design for Non-Designers presentation I've given at so many different conferences, which was awesome because I was able to test the material and see people being excited about it. And I was also able to travel. So I went to Berlin and I went to uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, and all over the world. But the problem was, is I was giving this conference presentation and getting good feedback and then traveling to another place and giving the conference presentation that during this time, I actually did no writing. And so it took me a lot longer to actually get the book out because I was distracting myself by doing all this wonderful travel, which sounds like a you know nice problem to have. But it, it was kind of ridiculous like two years after or whatever. I forget what time it was, but a good period of time after my first conference presentation, I was like, and I'm now finally working on the book. <laughs> And actually, just to pause there for a moment, um, one of the um, constituencies of this podcast of people that listen to it is people who are trying to um, 
replicate the success of the people who are interviewed. Um, and I think <laughs> you could talk a little bit about your experience uh, getting into conference presenting. I believe you had a blog post about it or something mm-hmm. where you talked about how, you know, you sent out lots and lots of uh, proposals. Yeah, there is necessarily get, you know, not everyone was accepted. Yeah, I think there's a lot of myths when it comes to conference proposals. Uh, A, I'll say that um, I find there's a a really distinct difference between design conferences and programming conferences, Mm -hmm. and that design conferences are a little bit more curated. They're usually invited uh, presenters. Um, It's usually the same around the same group of people presenting at most design conferences. And it's very hard to break into design conference speaking. That said, uh, programming conferences, there are, it feels like a billion and a half different kinds of programming conferences out there. They're usually very encouraging of new speakers. And because there's so many different conferences out there, their chances of speaking at these conferences is a lot higher. That said, uh, because conference programming conferences are, Lot are a lot diverse and new speakers, and there, there's so many of them, it's less likely that you'll have your travel and accommodation covered by programming conferences, much less a stipend, whereas design conferences, you might actually get your travel covered. So personally, I haven't done many design conferences. Uh, it's been always been an, an awesome experience when I've been able to speak at design conferences. But programming conferences are the best place, I think, for someone wanting to jump into programming. Excuse me. Uh, programming conferences are the best place for someone who wants to jump into conference speaking. Uh, it's a uh, really good environment to really test out uh, talking in front of an audience. And the last thing I want to say is that I, I'm saying, you know, anyone who wants to speak at a conference, go to a programming conference. You know, what happens if you don't want to speak about programming? Uh, the secret there is that programming conferences usually have a diverse track of information uh, to diverse tracks. And I was giving my design conf- my design talk uh, at these programming conferences, and I've given a talk on content writing. Um, I have another talk on marketing. So even if you don't you don't know programming and you don't know the languages or you don't uh, um, you're not a programmer yourself, you can create something something that you specialize in. Uh, you can create a talk on that and just what can you teach programmers? And then you can get into the conference speaking world by, you know, taking your talk, you know, whatever you want to say for programmers and submit that to programming conferences. And then you can start getting into that world um, by uh, going to these smaller conferences. And um, as I understand it, one of the, um, the sort of um, tack you take in your, in your talk and in your, in your book, Hello Web Design, is that um, often design books, and I've, I've read a couple of them myself, um, are directed at people who <clears throat> are, you know, presumed to be aiming to become expert design. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you've got a pretty strong opinion about that, that, that I think if, I mean, I'll let you, you say it, but as I understand it briefly, the idea is that for a lot of people who are, you know, approaching design, it's not necessarily because they want to become expert web designers and they don't necessarily need to be learning, you know, why it's, you know, F, 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 gray or whatever color it is. Yeah. I find this, in, this happens in both programming and design where an expert person is teaching someone who's not an expert and they have a tendency to just, uh, sidetrack into the background or the whys or the, uh, the history about something where that, why find that actually distracts from getting from someone from zero to one. Like I, you can teach history and the whys of things after someone has a basic grasp or a um, feeling. I feel like someone needs to have a success moment for them to learn something new. They need to have an early success 
feeling like they can actually achieve something and then they'll start diving in deeper and then those additional explanations will start being relevant and would make sense to them. So for design, you know, you open a design book and they talk about typography and they're like, all right, let's talk about the printing press. And for someone who's a programmer, who's just like, okay, I want to do better, make better slides, you know, learning about the printing press is interesting, but not relevant at that moment. So with Hello Web Design, I've, you know, taken all that explanation out. There's like a little bit, but I try to focus on the bare minimum explanation about why something is the way it is, just so you have uh, the stuff that you actually need to know. And then I, I really focus on shortcuts because you don't need to know the hard way of doing something when you're just trying to make better slides. You just want to know, how can I get a better color combination? Like, how do I uh, choose the colors for my slides? And I try to distill it down into a really quick and easy chapter. Uh, so you can actually, uh, in, you know, 15 minutes have a better way of choosing colors rather than spending hours learning about color theory. Yeah. I believe one of your, um, one of the, uh, points you make is that if you're, you know, if you've got a practical goal, which is, you know, I want to build a website or something like that. Um, don't steal, but definitely <laughs> uh, borrow or take inspiration or find, find precedents and templates and things like that, at least, at least as a starting point rather than, you know, start from scratch. Yeah, I think a lot of people, a lot of new designers think that they need to be able to work, you know, uh, take everything off their desk and have a blank slate and they can start designing from scratch. And then they're stuck with their pen in their hand going, wait, how do I actually start this? Where do I go? I don't have any ideas and it could spiral into anxiety. But that, I think that happens to every designer, no matter how much experience they have. Uh, and the key to get around that is to start looking at inspiration, seeing what other people are doing and, uh, get ideas from people because this is where that's why I try to be very clear is you shouldn't steal designs, but for new designers, if you're wanting to build a homepage for your startup, looking at other people's homepages and seeing what they're doing and seeing, uh, getting inspired by, uh, where the navigation goes or what kind of content you want and getting ideas from that and then designing makes the design process go so much faster and so much easier than if you, uh, rather than, you know, starting from a blank, blank slate with no inspiration at all. Um, I've got actually a couple of, um, design questions from the sort of, you know, normal user's perspective. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, everybody basically, you know, is interacting with designed things on screens, uh, all the time now. Um, and it's become a very important, excuse me, <clears throat> feature of our lives. Um, and, you know, just before this interview, I had what I think is a familiar experience for a lot of people, which is I had something important happening and I booted up Skype and all of a sudden <laughs> all sorts of updates I had to do. And I went to update my call recorder, um, and which is recording this audio. And then it, when I updated that, it automatically chose to update Skype. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I was like Jordy LaForge on an alien ship. Uh, and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know where anything is anymore, but I know this is a communications app. And so just like, you know, Jordy would know, okay, well, it's a spaceship, so it's got some propulsion and it's got some navigation and it's got weapons and it got, it's got life support. You look around for the combinations of things and you can figure out where things are. But from a designer's perspective, how do you how do you relate to that new reality that, you know, 
everybody has to just be so resourceful now all the time and anticipate <laughs> this kind of situation. Well, I will say that one of the things I like about teaching design is that it helps people who are building these experiences. If you have a, a, a little bit of design knowledge, hopefully given through Hello Web Design, uh, it helps you uh, remember the user experience is more important than how it looks. And I'm hoping that that helps people who are building these interfaces creates better up um, when they're, you know, you're creating a new uh, experience or you're creating a new design to always remember that keeping the user experience easy uh, and easy to understand is important. So, I mean, Skype obviously has designers in our team that are thinking about that, but that when you're talking about like loading something new and all of a sudden being like, Oh crap, how does this work? Uh, I just think of helping people, um, uh, one second, let me start over. One of the things when, when you're working on an app, I think it's someone who is like a programmer building an app forgets that it's important to how things are working. And then, uh, when they're thinking about how things are working, it's where the buttons are located to help someone, uh, understand how the app works, because there's some conventions in app design that people forget about, or someone who's a programmer doesn't realize that there's, there's a reason why usually the buttons, the menus are on the top left because everyone's used to that. So you don't want to move it on someone because it's going to throw off how they use that app. So I want to say is like adding design thinking when you're a programmer and you're building these interfaces is going to help you create better interfaces. It's going to help you realize those, um, those uh, what's underneath that needs to be built in to help people have a better experience. And what was the other, the main question you had? Uh, the main question I was asking there is as a, as a designer, um, uh, you know, you're, you're, I mean, I, I guess I'll re re ask it. I mean, as a designer, you always want to be designing more and, 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 and changing things. Um, and from a user's perspective, the, the introduction of that element of change becomes a part of the product that every time you go back to it, partially you're anticipating the possibility that you might have to learn something new. And as a designer, how do you sort of square that circle that you want people to be comfortable with things, but you also want to be changing them? Uh, so that's where, you know, that, that previous one I said is learning what um, things that people expect, like where things should be located, will help a new design stick better with people who are using those apps. Uh, knowing a little bit of the rules like underneath, uh, it'll help you like create new designs um, and create a new experience, new visual experience while still keeping the same kind of underlying uh, user experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that totally does. Um, mm -hmm. I've got another um, sort of, I guess uh, this one's kind of from the trenches kind of um, question about just the day-to-day -day work that designers do and then the, the, the experience that people have using what they build. Um, I've got a particular, and this is a bit of a selfish question, but I've got a, <laughs> I've got a personal preoccupation with people hiding crucial information in design. Yeah. And um, so and I've got a specific example. So, uh, when using Gmail, uh, I find just in incredibly frustrating because Gmail is always trying to hide things from you. Like for example, if I type in, I, I, I send from a number of different addresses in my same, in one Gmail account, and it always hides the address. As soon as I enter the, as soon as I choose the address, like Len at lean pub. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It, it just shows Len app. 
And that could be any number of email addresses that it's sending from, and it will actually even hide the two and replace it with a, the name. Um, but of course, you're not sending a message to a name, you're sending it to an address. <laughs> and um, I, I like to say, you know, and it's, it's, you know, if you've ever had a job where you could go to jail um, for sending the wrong person some information, um, you become very sensitive to that kind of thing. And I remember one time uh, working on a, um, uh, a, a sort of, you know, collaboration app and one of our sort of, you know, design sort of leaning developers was always hiding stuff like that, just taking the initiative. We were a small team and that's, you know, encouraged some initiative. And I remember asking him at one point, you know, why do you keep doing that? Like, why do you keep hiding that important information? He said, well, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to look at, I don't want to look at the email address all the time. Um, and so I guess I have two questions. One is just sort of, you know, the, the higher level one, which is what do you think about this sort of trend of hiding useful information to make things look better? And how can you deal with obstreperous um, people who don't do what you tell them to? <laughs> so I will say with Gmail, I, I agree with you completely. I, I would much prefer the email address. I'm actually looking at my Gmail right now. Uh, I would much prefer to see the entire email address. I remember when they launched that update where the compose window got so much smaller. Uh, they took away almost all the fields and you had to then choose if you wanted to update the um, subject line, you have to like go into drop down and say edit subject line rather than just having it there. Mm-hmm. And for someone with, I am a, you know, a computer user and I've been doing it for many, many years. And that drove me insane because they broke away. They took away all that information that I needed. And <laughs> I, the hardest part about being a designer and to look at it from the other side is designing for a pro users like you and me that aren't scared of a subject line, aren't scared of multiple fields and email while also designing for someone, someone's, uh, tech illiterate family member who is using, they want to send an email for the first time and they're overwhelmed by the fact that there's, they don't understand why an email address has that at sign in there. And it's much simpler for that person to see it's going to first name rather than first name at domain.com. So it's like, how do you combine both of those, you know, designing for someone like us who, who aren't scared of email addresses versus creating a better experience for someone who is tech illiterate rather than, and the one answer might be like, oh, that tech illiterate person needs to be tech literate and needs to not be scared by that. But I can see why that's why Gmail doesn't take that tack. They try to make it better for the completely new user at the expense of people like you and me. So that's, I can see both sides. I can see why Gmail did what they did. I don't personally agree with it, but I'll bet I, when I think about decisions like that, I always think about Gmail, Google alphabet has a billion and a half engineers and they probably tested this to high hell and <laughs> somewhere in the testing, they decided it was a better experience. And so I get to, I have no good answer here other than saying I can see both sides and I, I guess I give more leeway to something as wide ranging as Gmail to hide those things. That said, for someone when you're that's where knowing design and uh, knowing your audience, Gmail has probably a large audience, tech illiterate people, whereas designing for something where you are working with pro users, that's where hiding that kind of information can be a bad thing. Uh, where it can be more confusing than uh, to a pro user than it is 
if your audience is pro users and you're hiding information, that makes it more confusing to a pro user than you shouldn't hide that information. And I know that there is this thing about designers. I, I, that's pretty much the first half of my book is hiding clutter and how do you deal with clutter and design and how clutter uh, makes an experience better. Excuse me, taking away, reducing clutter makes an experience better. And I can see designers being like, oh, I'm going to hide this information because it's going to reduce clutter and make the visual experience better. And that's why the second half of my book is on user experience about testing these things and making sure that people actually can use stuff. Um, so it's a very new designer trope about hiding information that's useful. Whereas, you know, for Gmail, I can see that being a point, but that's where something where if you're designing something that could be for pro users, you shouldn't be. You should also remember that hiding information, sometimes clutter in those situations can be a good thing. Yeah, that's a really good um, distinction between the pro user and let's say the, the casual user um, and their different needs. And it it brings up something that I've I've asked a couple of people about before on this podcast, but not an actual designer, um, which is that, you know, the designer themselves brings their experience to what they do. And biases. Uh, yeah. And biases, exactly. And, and limitations. Um, and they might be tasked with designing something that they are neither a pro nor a casual user of. Um, and I use a payments app to pay royalties, uh, uh, to lean pub authors. Um, I'm not going to name it cause I'm going to say something critical and I actually like it and I think it's a great, service. <laughs> um, but they did start a little while ago, um, putting up when you go to pay. Well, first of all, they, they initially had a bunch of drop downs, so you could just make all your selections for what you wanted to do on one page. They turned it into a wizard, um, which is incredibly frustrating. Because it doesn't, if you're three steps in, it doesn't show you what you've done in the previous steps. Mm. And since you're sending money, you know, you really want to know what's going on. Um, and, uh, but, but the one very frustrating thing that they started doing was when you go to pay, they start showing you circle faces and account names just randomly. <laughs> and I, it just occurred to me looking at that, I'm like, no one who's ever sent a hundred thousand dollar or million dollar mass payment and no one who's ever been sending that 50 bucks they really worked hard for, you know, so grandma can get a bus ticket and come and visit for Christmas. And there's no other 50 bucks. If you screw up, uh, nobody who ever had either of those experiences would ever serve up random circle faces um, <laughs> to someone who's trying to make a payment. And it was just this very stark, reminder that as important and as ubiquitous as these, you know, design interfaces are, how much the, the sort of person behind them is there in your face um, mm -hmm. and how much the sort of office politics are actually right there in your face, right? Because somebody's looking for a promotion and, you know, let's say two people are saying, Hey, each of you show me what you got for our redesign on Tuesday. And one person just says, no, what we've got works great. <laughs> and another person is like, everybody likes, you know, circle faces and account names nowadays. Uh, and guess, guess who wins that competition? And do you, I mean, I guess I know that that's a very long story, but I mean, what do you, what do you think, you know, can be done to help get designers generally speaking, maybe at big companies, you know, out of their um, box? 
Well, this is one reason why in, in Hello Web Design, I, I did the first half on visual, uh, on learning how to like deal with clutter and how to make visual design better. But the second, I, I try to be very clear that the most important thing is the data and what's actually happening and how well people are actually using what you're designed, because it's not just how it looks, but how it works. And it actually reminded me of a story, your story reminded me of um, an experience, a uh, design experience that I had a while back where I was using Periscope because I, I don't usually join the, I haven't looked at a lot of people doing live video on Periscope, except when there was a wildfire going through where I grew up, especially the mountains where I, I was, I mentioned earlier where I grew up, there was this huge wildfire uh, last year that actually tore through a town. This is um, the Valley Fire that went through Middletown, if anyone remembers that. And I was in my house in San Jose, just knowing that my mountains were on fire. And I go on Twitter and I was searching for like hashtag Valley Fire to see what people are saying. And people were posting periscopes of them escaping the wildfire. So naturally, I'm watching these periscopes. And it's a really surreal experience to be using tech and watching like being on live video of people escaping the mountains I grew up in because it's all on fire. The thing was, Periscope has this feature where you can heart a feed uh, if someone's doing live feed and then everyone who's watching it will have this little explosion of hearts from the side showing that people are enjoying what's going on and having a little explosion of hearts does not make any sense when you're watching if someone escaping a wildfire, <laughs> like it's something, it's a design decision that makes sense when you're thinking of someone live, live streaming, uh, learning how to code, but live streaming, escaping a fire hearts are not the metaphor that you want to have, um, when you're watching that, it was just really, I can see the point behind the design, but I, the designers didn't think about what they built being used in that context, which is a lesson we learned for a lot of designers out there. Yeah. That reminds me of the, uh, now forgotten huge controversy of, uh, Twitter switching from stars to hearts. <laughs> yes. Um, I know. I wish it wasn't forgotten. It still bugs me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's funny how those things, uh, just become part of the background. Um, before moving on to asking you about, um, your really interesting experience running successful Kickstarters and, and, and how you wrote your book and, and stuff like that. Um, actually, I, I skipped a question I wanted to ask you and you just reminded me of it when you talked about the wildfires in California where you mm -hmm. grew up. And the question is, why did you move to, uh, in winter, I see, uh, Toronto and all the <laughs> mountain, mountainless, um, yes. Toronto. It was a really hard decision. Uh, <laughs> my husband, that same guy I talked about before, is originally from Toronto. So he had a pretty much a seven-year campaign convincing me to move up here. And during those seven years, is constantly me being like, no, there's no balance. No, it's cold there. No, it's a completely different country. And then last summer, it was finally, uh, I had finally been in Toronto enough to fall in love with the city. And uh, I finally got to a point in my life where I, I lived in California my entire life. And that's last summer. I kind of realized that, you know, moving, moving to a different country and a diff being in a city for the first time, I've always lived in rural or suburbs. So this is my first time living in a city. Uh, first time in the cold, really, that was hard to get used to. It's actually just getting cold now. And it's been kind of upsetting because I've had to break out my giant knee length marshmallow puffy coat that, I think every other Torontonian looks at me and laughs because it's like, oh, that's really obvious there's a Californian running around in Toronto because it's not that cold yet. 
Uh, it was a bunch of things. It was last summer. Uh, I don't want to go into politics, but it turned out to be a really good decision to start about, moving. <laughs> I was just about to say some people might say you got out right in time. Yeah, that was an accident, a happy accident. Uh, I'm really happy to be in Canada now, and I'm really happy with what Canada has been doing in the world. There's And Toronto has is, is been a really wonderful and multicultural liberal city to be a part of. Uh, so that was an accident. It was not on purpose. Um, it's been a happy accident to have a Canadian husband at this time, though. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big change weather-wise and politics-wise. Um, yeah, I, I miss the mountains, really. It's... We drove five hours north and it was still flat. <laughs> I was like, this, this place is so flat. So I've been, you know, because I still speak at conferences. I've been trying to, like, I'll fly to a conference and speak there. And I try to spend a couple extra days seeing the local area. So uh, like a month ago, I was in Spain in San Sebastian, which is a wonderful city. And I was able to do like an all day hike into another town, um, go there for lunch. And early this year, I was in Italy and I walked for four days on the Via Francigena, which is like this, like the Camino de Santiago in Spain. There's one in Italy as well. So I was able to spend some time backpacking. So basically I've been trying to, now that I live in a city and I have no mountains, I love backpacking and being outside. I've been trying to combine that with my travels. So I get that outdoor time that I I need from my old days as a Californian. Yeah, well, that sounds like a really um, awesome solution to that problem to travel. Yeah, except I'm Except right now I'm burnt out on speaking, so I'm not going to be speaking for a while. I've decided not to do any conference submissions for at least six months because I, uh, like this month, um, I was in Spain and then I was in Chicago and then I was in Ireland and then I did a personal trip to Iceland all in one month. And I was at the end of that. I'm, again, very lucky that I could do that, but I'm going to take a break (laughs) now. Um. Yeah, thanks for telling that story. That was really, really. <laughs> um, those are big, big changes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, moving on to the subject of um, your work as an author, um, a big part you've you've talked a little bit about um, your books, uh, but a big part of being an author, and particularly a self-published author, is getting attention. Um, and you've been very good at that. You've run three. Yeah. Well, I would say um, you've, won, <laughs> you've won three successful uh, Kickstarter campaigns. You raised over twenty thousand uh, dollars in your campaign for Hello Web Design, and I was wondering if you could just for anyone listening, if you could talk a little bit about your experience and you know what you did running those campaigns. Thanks for reminding me to be thankful because I get in this problem. I think everyone does. We always look at someone who's doing better than you, yeah. and then you you know you don't feel like you're doing as well as you actually are. And that's, I'm doing that right now with the, cause Hello Web Design came out last week and I'm one weekend and I'm like, oh, it could, it's not as good as it could have been. But I think actually it's, it actually has been doing well. And I've just been kicking myself. So thanks for the reminder <laughs> that uh, my Kickstarter was awesome. Um, I'm really glad that I've, for all three books, I've done a Kickstarter and it's a really good way for, for me to judge if people want what I'm writing uh, and it's also really good as a way of uh, getting an advance for a book without going through a publisher because, you know, a publisher could say, OK, I'm going to give you $8,000 and then take 95 percent of your royalties yeah. versus uh, a taking a lot of effort. But doing a Kickstarter, getting a, a chunk of money as an advance and then you have 100 percent of the royalties. It just made sense to me uh, when working on Hello Web App. Um, Actually, I should back up. I actually got a publishing publishing house gave me an offer for Hello Web App. 
and I ended up turning it down because I had looked at the, <laughs> the, uh, the effort required to do it myself. And I've decided that I'd much rather have the hundred percent of the royalties and do everything myself rather than go through a publisher. And I'm happy with that decision. I think it was a good decision. Uh, did, what am I missing? Did okay, you yeah, anything particular to, to, you know, reach out to people or like, Oh yeah. You put up a, you put up a page on Kickstarter, but I assume you did other things as well. Yes. Uh, Kickstarters, I lovingly say, are 30 days of hell. It's ridiculous how much stress um, a Kickstarter can be because you think, oh, I'm just going to put this page up and people will come. No, obviously. With anything in the world, you can't just like put a page up and expect it to just be rolling in donations. You have to do a lot of work. So for the two programming books, I launched those books um, I did the Kickstarters around big programming conferences. So one year, one of them was during PyCon, uh, which is the largest Python programming conferences conference in the world, I believe. And then the other one was during a DjangoCon, which is because it's on Django. It's during the, the U.S. DjangoCon conference. So that meant I was able to go to those conferences where there were programming rock stars and I can go to them in person and be like, hi, I have a Kickstarter. Can you tweet my Kickstarter and help me promote it? And in person, people usually say yes. Uh, so I just do, I did a lot of legwork really just tracking down people and making sure in person that they were helping me promote those campaigns uh, and doing it at those conferences um, was a really good way of uh, drumming up a lot of um, anticipation. Uh for Hello Web Design, I decided something to do something different, and it actually wasn't that successful. I launched a campaign, the Kickstarter campaign, and I decided to do this city tour where I flew. I uh, did um, a talk at a company in Toronto, and then I flew to New York, and I did a talk uh, company there, and then I flew to San Francisco and did a talk at a company there. And I thought that would be a good way for me to go to these cities and talk to people in person without having a conference. I get more ground covered. And I actually did not do as well as say running a Kickstarter during a conference. I guess at a conference, I think people are talking about that thing and a lot more thinking about that thing. Whereas I did these talks and I expect the companies that I was talking at would help back the campaign. Cause I, I was doing free talks. I, I talked at, um, I shouldn't think their name. That'd be mean. There was a big, big company in New York. I did an internal talk with them and they were just, the, the talk ended at, it was like 10 to 11 or excuse me. No, it was 11 to 12 and 12 hit. I finished my talk and they just like took me to the front door and said, okay, bye. Thanks for that. And I didn't get lunch. I didn't get any backing from the company. I asked them, I was like, Hey, would you mind helping out with the campaign? And they're like, nah. And I was like, oh my God, I flew myself to New York and I put myself up and I did a talk at your company for your employees and nothing. And I didn't expect that. I thought I would be able to get some kind of, uh, campaign contribution from doing these things. So that didn't work out. Conferences worked out a lot better. Uh, lesson learned this time around. Maybe I just need to do it differently. Um, I did have a, a public talk at Stripe in San Francisco. That was really, that was nice, but it didn't really lead to a lot of campaign contributions. Could you? Yeah. So that was, that was, uh, one way I, I helped promote the Kickstarter. That's different than what you'd see in most, um, how to run a Kickstarter articles. That was something that I did a little bit differently, but I did a lot of normal things that people do with Kickstarters, which was writing blog posts and submitting to Reddit and hacker news and, uh, asking all my friends to donate. Cause I, I say Kickstarters are the nice way to ask your friends for money. Right. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people are very supportive of what I do. Mm -hmm. 
but yeah, the, the in-person thing I think works really well if you can time it around the right events. Yeah. Thanks for that. I hadn't actually heard that, that very, um, uh, useful and specific example of something you can do, but that sounds really mm-hmm. good. Um, and you know, thanks for sharing the stories of the ones that, that do work and the ones that don't work as well, because I think it's yeah. important when you're, when you're out there, um, doing this kind of thing, you have to ex- just expect and, and I mean, I'm saying this as someone who knows it, but can't live it, that you have to expect that some things aren't going to work out. Some people aren't going to be nice. Um, you know, and that's just, just part of, of being out there and doing things. Yeah. Yeah. I have like, I don't, I wouldn't say I regret it, but I'm glad that I went through the experience. So I know what to avoid in the future. Cause I'm sure I'm going to write another book. Um, one of the uh, really interesting things that you do around your, your uh, books as well is that it's not, it's you no, know, as you say, it's not just, you know, put up a, put up a web page or something like that. You, um, you uh, have dedicated websites and Twitter accounts, email <laughs> newsletters, and you know, you're always doing updates and adding new resources, including workshops and free tutorials. And one thing that you do as well is you use the, um, app discourse, um, mm-hmm. to, uh, at least for hello web app, um, uh, where readers can go and basically talk to each other and exchange information. Um, and I just discovered that last night. And got authorization to reveal that we're going to be um, using discourse on LeanPub. Yay! Um, uh, and it's something I mean, we've had we've had discuss like D I S Q U S pages mm-hmm. for books since you know for for many years, but they've been underused and underpromoted. And the social side of things uh, is is one of has been one of our huge gaps, right? Because a, a big part of LeanPub is is actually about um, authors. Who, who, if they choose to, can interact with readers to improve their books if they're publishing them in progress. And so we're really excited to be releasing this. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, how discourse has worked for you. Have you found that um, readers like it? Uh, why, why did you choose? Why did you choose discourse? <laughs> Well, first I want to say, A, I love LeanPub. That's awesome that you guys are doing that. Uh, I haven't said that yet in this podcast, how much I appreciate your platform. So I'll put that out there now. Thank you so much. Uh, with this course, writing a book, teaching people how to program, I, because I, I went through it myself, I know how scary it can be, especially if you're working on your own and you have no one to ask questions. And that's really a key to, to learning how to program is being able to ask the questions and get answers and feeling um, not alone. Uh, and I, I wanted to have a place where people could ask me questions and ask the silly things that they, that's going wrong. Or I guess I, I, I had this fear of someone taking my book and being like, I don't understand this and not having any place to ask. So, uh, I started working at discourse because it was easy for me to build and, and launch like there, I think I used a, a tutorial, uh, to, um, to deploy it on Docker. And this is one of those things. Again, I, I say I'm a programmer, but there's so many things I don't actually, I do things. I don't understand what's working on, how it's working in the background. And, but as long as it's working, I'm happy. So I use this, I do this tutorial verbatim, like how to launch discourse on Docker and on DigitalOcean, which is what's, what I'm using. And I was able to do it step by step. And at the end I had a form. So I was like, cool, this is perfect. It's much easier to use. Uh, actually, okay. Um, side note, uh, back in the day when I launched Wedding Lovely, I decided to build a forum for Wedding Lovely for people to talk. And I used one of the forums 
one of the forum softwares that was really popular in like the early 2000s. And it was just swarmed with spam immediately. It was like thousands of spam messages every single day. And then because of software, I paid like a hundred bucks for it, which was a lot of money for me back then. And I just couldn't use it because it was a PHP software, forum software, um, awful. So I had to completely shut it down and wasted my hundred dollars. So with this course, I was kind of like, I remember this experience running a forum and I was like, Oh no, I don't want to be swamped with spam. And I think someone recommended it to me as the one that, uh, has the best spam detection protocols for a forum. And I will say that, that they do a really good job not having hundreds of spam messages every single day. So that was one of the reasons why I used it. Uh, it's been really successful for Hello Web App because when people email me directly, I can say, hey, can you go to the forum and and answer your question there? And about half the time now, by the time they've, they've added their question, someone else that I don't know has responded to it. And I, this is still a mystery to me where these people came from. And I love them. I should call them. I should give them a flare and call them angels or something like that. Cause I expected the forum when people ask questions that I'd be the person answering. I didn't expect people to be hanging around. It's not really a good community thing for hello web app. It's just the place where people ask me questions and people can search questions, but there are people using it as a community resource that aren't me, aren't people I know. And that was the biggest surprise to me that that happened. And I'm, I think that discourse that being it's such a good piece of online software, um, help that happen. Oh, well, thanks very much for, um, for telling us that story. That's actually really, um, useful, useful, mm -hmm. um, that, and in particular, uh, you know, if someone emails you directing them to the forum, not as a way of, um, uh, getting them off your back, <laughs> but as a way of sharing their question and your response or someone else's responses with everybody who's reading yeah. the book. And so it actually brings this utility to something, something by making it public rather than keeping it private. Yeah. It's been a huge time saver for me, uh, for the programming stuff. I don't think I would do something like that for design. It's the hardest part about teaching design is that so there's no like right or wrong answer. There's no way of saying like, this is the way to go. It's always like shades of black and white. So I don't think I'll add like a design forum. I, there's a, there's a place online like designer news that exists for asking design questions, but it definitely worked really well for um, answering programming questions. Um, at the end of these interviews, I always like to ask a couple of LeanPub specific questions. Um, and uh, one I'd like to ask is, um, why did you choose to use LeanPub to um, make your books? LeanPub's uh, ebook generation has just been invaluable for me. I don't think I could do it from scratch at all. I I, I really cho I originally chose it because um, a I was building a programming book and I knew people I forget who but someone said LeanPub, they're really great with programming books. And I know that LeanPub has other books, but like I they especially excel with programming and work the building books for programmers. So I was like, oh, I should check this out. And then I used it with my Markdown files to create the EPUB and the Kindle version of my book. And I was like, it was like, Oh, done for me. So that was awesome. <laughs> and I don't think I will ever build an ebook from scratch ever again. I just, uh, the fact that I can write a markdown and then push into lane pub and have those ebooks generated has been awesome. Okay, great. Well, thanks for that. That's really good. Good feedback. Um, uh, and actually my last question is, um, and the answer, sometimes people are, are, um, don't have an answer to this, so that's okay if you don't. But if there was one thing we could build or one thing we could fix for you, what would you ask us to do? 
so my my latest book, the design book, I actually took because you say in there um, your terms and conditions or whatever page that you can take the the files and move them onto Amazon and sell it as a Kindle book, which is also an amazing policy. I'm so happy. I actually rechecked it to make sure that stuck around because it feels like such a something that most services don't let you do. They don't say they don't say, hey, feel free to take these files and use them elsewhere. So thank you, Lean Pub, for that. That said, uh, this design book, I wanted to put it on Kindle with better, a um, little bit better design. Just, I want to have it a little bit more designy. And uh, the generated files, I, as a designer, I wanted to have a, a little bit more ability to, to update some of the, the way that the um, chapter headings were laid out. So I did that myself manually um, with CSS. Didn't take me that much that long, um, but they look with a little bit of updates. They look a lot better, and just it'd be kind of cool if I had some way to do that in Lean Pub, some way of making a little bit more design changes. Even though I know that Lean Pubs, some of the one of the Lean Pub uh, um, strengths is the fact that all the books are are in designed in the same way, so they're super readable. You don't have to deal with designery nonsense. But maybe there's a halfway point. Maybe there's something else that I could do to to please a designer in me. Yeah, thanks for that. That's really that's really good feedback. Um, uh, and and I like the very specific nature of it as well. That's really good to know because I mean, you know, if, if I've never had anyone say specifically chapter headings, I don't think before. But those are actually, <laughs> those are actually very important parts of the, yeah. the first thing you see. That's um, like the only thing I really changed was yeah. just the chapter headings. Yeah, we've had we've had um, occasionally. Uh, we have had that request, you know, can I, can I have more control over the design? And it's this sort of, and I, I imagine that at some point in the future, we, we may, we may add more functionality around that. Um, for us, there's an interesting kind of philosophical issue at stake mm-hmm. is that when people are writing, they shouldn't be worried about how things look when you're writing words. Um, you probably shouldn't be too worried about how things look. Right. Um, but, you know, if you're writing a book, you're probably a, an opinionated perfectionist um, <laughs> and or you or at least you're, you may more likely than just the average person to be. And um, I know from my own experience, you know, making Web pages and, and writing, uh, you know, books and stuff like that, that, you know, the temptation to format is just always there. I mean, and you can sit down and you've got your brilliant idea and all of a sudden it's three hours later and you've got to go and like you found the right font or something like that. Um, and you didn't write your chapter. Um, so that's, that's yeah. something, that's something that we, we do, we do. I mean, it, and it's, it's particular to lean pub because lean, which I totally agree with. Yeah. 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 Thing. Yeah. Because lean pub is for in progress publishing partly mm-hmm. as well. And so we really want to reflect in our, well, our design. We yeah. Have that reflected. And one of the ways we reflect that is, Hey, like, we know that it sort of sucks in a way to not have as much control over how things are going to look in the end. But by the way, you're not done. Um, yeah. <laughs> get off the book theme page and, you know, get back to writing. Yeah, uh, I know. This, this thing I knew was just, it's me being a nitpicky designer. But it's also because I have that background in editorial design. And I did the design of the print books as well. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I'm, I'm a little bit of an anomaly. And I, I overall think that you're making the right decision. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for letting us know. I mean, we do, you know, at least at least I can speak for myself. You know, I often, as you were saying before, you always look at the people who are doing better. And when you're when you're, you know, behind an app that people are using, you're always thinking about its weaknesses and not necessarily its strengths. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it's good to hear about it, you know, the 
you know, I guess 99.9% of it uh, worked right for you and those, those damn chapter headings. Yeah. Some tweaking. That's uh, why I'll, I'll never make an ebook from scratch and have to deal with all the, the crane doing all that. It's not worth it for me, especially even as a designer and having the background and doing HTML and CSS and uh, no, I just, that's why lean pub is my favorite. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> thanks very much for um, uh, taking the time to do this uh, interview. I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, we covered a lot of ground. Um, and uh, thanks for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, thanks for having me and, and featuring my book and being uh, the supporter of what I do, too. Thank you so much. Thanks.